This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Fall 2017, Episode 1. We're talking today about Land of the Lustrous, Episode 1. My name is Theta, with an 8. And I have too many whiteboards and care too much about digging into the tales of every single little episode. Now this is the very first episode of Land of the Lustrous, so we're going to be meeting a lot of characters for the first time, we're going to be establishing all the initial goals and conflicts we can discern, discuss the sort of world-building elements that come up, and take our first stab at figuring out what kind of themes may exist in the series. There will also be portions at the end where I talk about what to watch for in upcoming episodes, and I'll also engage in some mild speculation about where the series as a whole may be going. Now before we actually get started with this episode's analysis, I want to take a moment and talk about the pronouns I'm going to be using throughout this series. If you have any familiarity at all with the series, you probably know where I'm going with this. If you don't care about the what or the why, go ahead and skip to this timestamp. That'll take you to the beginning of the goals section. Alternatively, you can click on the goals link in the description. Or you can scroll past until you see the title animation play. So then to talk about pronouns, because this is going to be a series long thing, so I want to go ahead and get it out of the way. Know first that I'm someone who cares about text, not context. That is to say, the only things I care about when analyzing a work is the work itself. I don't care about original source material. I don't care about author commentary. I don't care about any kind of supplemental publication. Basically, when it comes to analysis, I don't care about anything except what is inside the actual runtime of the episode. The text of the work, not any of the context under which it is actually created. I bring that up because I did something I don't normally do when I'm analyzing a work, and that is to go dig for some supplemental information. And the reason I did is because some of the subtitle and translations confused me, and I wanted to go find out if this had to do with a translation problem or not. I don't speak Japanese, I know a tiny bit from osmosis, so I usually want to know if there's a translation problem that is interfering with my ability to understand the text. Translation is more art than science, and so can vary quite a bit. Anyway, something I discovered that is not in the text of this episode is that the gems are meant to be genderless. I'm sure there will be some sort of in-universe explanation forthcoming, and I do know that, practically speaking, that closes off a lot of areas of conflict or narrative, so there's no problem at all with that conceptually. The real problem comes when you want to talk about the series in English, like I'm doing. I'm not sure how well this works in the original language. I know Japanese has gendered versions of first and second person, for example. But in English, at the very least, we don't have a good gender-neutral third-person pronoun. This can lead to some confusion, as in this scene, but because their touch brings ruin, we have no way of handling it. You have two pronouns here, there, which is a plural possessive, and it, which is basically a gender-neutral thing you assign to things. But if you back up and look at the line right before this, both of these pronouns are referring to cinnabar, or at least I think so. The it could be referring to the touch also. The attempt to use the gender-neutral pronoun it there actually causes confusion. I mean, there is totally wrong because it's plural, and it could work because it's singular, even though it causes confusion like just then. But the problem with that is it, when referring to a person in English, tends to be very dehumanizing. If you don't believe me, try referring to someone's newborn baby, whose gender you don't know, as an it. See how well their parents take that. So what to do? 
Well, just like with the newborn baby, you look for some pink or some blue to see what kind of gender is being signaled. So in our case, we're gonna look at the gems and see how it is they are signaling gender. In other words, we're going to refer to them as he or she because clarity. And if you look at them, there's pretty clear pattern in what they're signaling. The gems have long hair, elaborately styled. They have colorful fingernails. They wear heels. They're very slender through the upper body and shoulders. And perhaps most telling, they have the small waist to wide hip ratio. Now these are not androgynous designs. All of those things I just mentioned are associated with femininity. Not only that, but all the voice talent, at least that we've heard so far, are female voice actresses. And so, yeah, we're gonna call them she and her and girls. The lone exception here is Master Kongo, who doesn't have any of those things I just mentioned. I'm not sure at all if he is supposed to be the same kind of thing as the rest of the gems or not, but he is signaling male. So we're gonna call him a he. I realize there are people who insist this is wrong and bad. It's the internet. Somebody somewhere cares a lot. And I confess that using gendered pronouns to refer to things that are supposed to be genderless does complicate matters. But I'm speaking English to an English audience. The goal of language is communication, and communication is only effective when it's clear. Using he and she and other gendered pronouns serves this goal of clarity, so that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. Digging through the nitty gritty of story is complicated enough without a handicap. So we're gonna be referring to the gems in the feminine, Congo at least in the masculine, anything else genderless shows up, we'll figure it out then. Enough of that, on to the episode. Like I said before, this is the first episode, so there's a lot of figuring initial starting positions out. This is especially true for goals and conflicts, which are the main things that move stories. There won't really be much progress on any of these that we talk about because they're just now showing up, we're just now being introduced to them. To start with goals, goals always belong to someone. Goals can be shared, and they can even belong to an unknown entity, but they always belong to some character in a story. Fos here is our main character, so it's no surprise we learn the most about her goals. She seems to be the only one of the gems that has no job, and so unsurprisingly, she wants a job. The hitch is she doesn't want any job, she wants a job that she perceives as important, or that has status attached to it. Now in her mind, an important job is the fight, and so one of her other goals is to join the fight. And I imagine it's exactly because she can't do that job that she sees it as so important or having so much status attached to it. When she is given the task of compiling an encyclopedia, she is completely unimpressed. So clearly simply having a purpose, having a job, was not enough. It had to be something that she thought was valuable or that she thought had some status or importance attached to it. This is pretty clearly demonstrated when Morga teasingly refers to her as a master scholar, and you can see her entire countenance change. Suddenly someone's attached some importance or some prestige to this job, and now maybe it's a little bit more interesting to her. Now she adds on a goal, which is that she wants to make a great discovery, in her role as master scholar, of course. Now, ultimately she wants to make that great discovery because she's hoping it will convince them to let her join the fight. So that's still the goal taking precedence, it seems. But those first goals sort of describe the foes that we begin with. Now she does get a goal added toward the end of the episode. She's really the only character that shows any change or growth in the very short time we've had to get to know everyone, and this change comes about because of her encounter with Cinnabar. By the way, I am going to be using the English pronunciation of all of these gem names, because the Japanese names appear to just be Japanese versions of these words. 
Anyway, we'll talk more about the encounter with Cinnabar when it comes to characterization, but Fos originally is seeking her out because she's hoping to turn her into her assistant, or to enlist her in making the said great discovery. It's only when confronted with the reality of her and her situation that Fos adds this somewhat altruistic goal of wanting to find a place for Cinnabar. Now, that doesn't eradicate any of her other goals, but it is going to be one more thing that moves her behavior in the future. Speaking of Cinnabar, she has a couple of goals of her own. The main one is that she wants to feel useful or desirable. Her particular situation makes her an outsider, makes her a little bit of a threat to everyone else, and her job appears to have no value. She's the night watchman for an enemy that never shows up at night. So she wants to be useful to someone, desired by someone, even if it's the enemy. Alternatively, and these goals may be at odds with each other, she wants to be free of the night. She doesn't want to be banished to the night. She doesn't want to ruin everything, destroy everything. She doesn't want to fight anymore. She wants to be freed from her circumstance, which I've simply written as being freed from the night because that's how she phrases it. Now we have a few goals from our other, a little bit more minor characters. Morga appears to want to take some of the strain off Master Kongo. I think at the very least, she fancies herself a little more self-reliant, but she makes reference to his age, which is something we'll talk about in a second. So it seems that taking over or helping with the defense of their little area is something she hopes to take over more and more of. Kongo, on the other hand, wants to protect everyone. That's a goal of his. It's very clear what a priority that is to him, because when Fos brings up in passing that there was a sunspot, he is immediately on his way to help. There is no hesitation. There is no questioning of his purpose. He goes immediately, and he is, of course, overwhelmingly capable in this manner. His other goal is the inciting incident for this whole series, which is that he wants to find everyone a job, and Fos is the last one he hasn't found a use for. Tasking her with the encyclopedia may be for her good, not for necessarily his or everyone else's good. It's hard to say at this point, and none of them even seem to know either how valuable something like that would be. They've gone however long they've gone without it. And finally, I have put the Lunarians up here, the moon people. It's hard to say if a goal is something you can even ascribe to them. The way they're presented is so alien, it's hard exactly to say if this should apply to them. But they clearly want to take the girls to their homeland. It's the major sort of starting conflict of this whole thing. That they kidnap the gems because they're pretty, I guess. Not so pretty that they won't risk shooting pieces of them at other gems, but you know. Now that brings us nicely into conflicts. Conflicts also tend to be major movers of stories. In the same way that goals have a condition for me to count them, which is that they belong to a character, conflicts have a condition as well. And that condition is that they must be solvable or might be capable of being resolved. Maybe not overcome, maybe just carried out to completion. For example, if you were telling a story about the D-Day landings in Normandy, you wouldn't count World War II as a conflict because it's not solvable or resolvable within that story, okay? But a particular machine gun nest on that beach pinning you down is a conflict because it is resolvable. Either you take it out or your whole squad is dead. Either way, the conflict is overcome or resolved. The war itself, not a conflict, it's actually setting. It goes over in world building, all right? That's how I do conflicts. So I've put the Lunarians kidnapping the gems as the conflict here because I assume it is resolvable. Either they can overcome it in some way, or they'll simply all be kidnapped, and that'll be the end of that. Right now, this seems like the main driver of things. That may change, but at least in this episode, the two times they show up are what move all the other characters into action. That conflict also helps bring out and help us understand the other conflicts I've written up here. The second one is that Fos wants to fight, but she's actually too brittle for that. She's too weak of a gem for that kind of behavior. This is a conflict because she does not have the self-awareness to understand how dangerous that is for her, that she simply can't do that. She still has a 
goal to get into the fight, even though by all counts she should know that this poses an existential threat to her. So until she gives up on wanting to fight or finds a way to overcome her brittleness, that conflict remains on the board. Now Fosa's little conflict is illustrated when the Lunarians show up the first time. When they show up the second time, we learn about Cinnabar's kind of despair. She fights them off and honestly kind of mops the floor with them, but she doesn't want to do it. She's really only doing it because Fos is there and she's the one they're after. She's been out there hoping it was her they were coming after, hoping to be taken away by someone who can find a use for her or will desire her. She despairs of her predicament and that has informed her behavior, it seems, for some time. Luckily, both Fos and Cinnabar have goals related to eliminating this conflict, so maybe we'll see it come off. Not yet sure if this will really be a conflict but Kongo's age is referred to by Morga. It's just in passing, but you don't normally bring up frivolous details that early in a series if they have no importance at all. So I suspect that whatever it is his age indicates, whatever sort of crisis that may precipitate, is going to be bearing down on us sometime. That's all going to come back to his age and what that means. Again, we don't quite yet know what he is or what any of them are, really. But I don't think it would have come up if it wasn't some sort of threat to the status quo. Finally, we have Cinnabar's lack of control over her poison, as they call it. It's not enough that she can kill plants and animals and the earth itself. It's not enough that she seems to be the only thing that can permanently damage her fellow gem sisters. No, on top of that, she doesn't have full control. This is illustrated in kind of a bizarre fashion during her fight with the Lunarians. But it's a conflict because her lack of control is part of the reason she has to be isolated from everyone else. If there was a way to resolve that loss of control, she might not be in the same situation. This might be a completely different story, at least for her, if she had full control over that power. Characterization is up next. Again, this is the start point for the series, so we're mostly dealing with initial characterizations, a starting point for how we understand these characters, who we can then watch grow or change over the course of the rest of the series. I gotta say, overall, this episode did a really good job of giving us a sense of these different personalities, a few different priorities, how they mesh and interact and sort of conflict and spar with each other. Characterization and world building is kind of the bulk of what's going on here anyway, and they mostly do a pretty good job of making it feel kind of organic. Now, I've written Fos up here first, but I'm actually going to come back to her and do her last. She's the only one that has clear change over the course of this single episode, so we'll give her a little more time at the end. So instead, we'll start with Master Kungo. Now it's clear that he is very powerful. He has some sort of wind or shockwave power. It's hard to say exactly what's going on there. And this is clearly related to the role of guardian that he seems to adopt. I don't know if that was his choice or if he's assigned here or if he's one of these gems and just looks very different. We don't know yet. But he seems to me to have a very paternal, protective thing going on here. We saw that in what I've already mentioned with the goals where he immediately goes after the sunspots the moment he finds out about them. He doesn't leave it to Morga and Gosha to take care of it. Wisely, it turns out. And when it's all said and done and he sort of immediately obliterates them, he has a bit of a temper. It's clear the other gems are used to this behavior from him because one of them sees it's coming, warns everyone else, and all of them, except Fos, clear out of the picture. And for good reason, since his outburst ends up shattering her into pieces. That whole scene is honestly a great bit of show-don't-tell because we get to see his power, we get to see his anger and know that it's a normal thing for him since they all clear out, and we get to see Fos's fragility and the results of it all in one little bit there. Like I said, he is trying to find a use for everyone. And it seems, because of Fos's particular temperament, he thinks that she might be well suited to this task of making this encyclopedia. I do think it's interesting that he's bothered by Morga's temerity in trying to fight the Lunarians herself, but is not bothered by how flippant Fos is about the whole thing and how much she backtalks him. He's very sort of calm and understanding and doesn't seem to bother him at all. So to talk about Morga and a little bit about Goshe, these are both clearly gems, Morganite and Goshenite, and along with their missing friend Heliodor, these are all types of barrels. They're all about the same strength or hardness. 
This series is using the Mohs scale of hardness as a sort of power level comparison. And in that scale, Morga and Gaucher and Heliodor would all be about the same hardness, 7, 7.5. The colors of their hair and their eyes and their fingernails and their mouths all match the color of their gems. Now Morga and Gaucher and Heliodor all being kind of friends or partners it seems like makes sense since they're all barrels. But Morga and Gaucher have very different personalities. Morga's very cocksure and kind of haughty and overconfident and it kind of gets them in trouble. And she's also kind of antagonistic and teases after Fos. She's obviously put up with her a lot. Gaucher by comparison is more cautious, a little more understanding. She's sort of quieter and subdued, which I think is supposed to be reflected in her sort of clear or gray quality. Whereas Morga's a little bit louder and more fiery owing to her sort of reddish pinkish thing going on. Despite their differing treatment of Fos, I think they both kind of tolerate her, kind of don't really hate her even though they act like it and kind of love to tease her. This really feels a lot more like sibling rivalry than any sort of actual animosity. Rue Teal is next. We got just a little bit about her. She seems to be the one who's in charge of putting the gems back together when they get hurt or kind of disassembled, depending. She definitely has a little bit of that healer persona. She also has a little bit of the scholar about her. She seems like someone who values knowledge, values wisdom. She acts as a little bit of a confidant for Fos, and it may be that she does a similar role to Cinnabar, since she seems to be the only person that interacts with her other than Fos during this entire episode. She's the one that explains the situation with Cinnabar to Fos, saying that Cinnabar is incredibly bright and gifted, but laments that the fact of her situation and the fact that they can't deal with her means they have to shut her out into night. Rutil seems to have a lot of insight, and something she says in this episode is going to come up again when we talk about theme. To get then to Cinnabar herself, her name actually matches the gem that she comes from. Now Cinnabar, in reality, is sort of a brick-red form of mercury sulfide. That is to say, this is one of the things we get mercury from. So all that poison you see is mercury. Mercury is the only metal that is liquid at room temperature. And so it's no surprise that mercury sulfide, the cinnabar, is as soft as it is, incredibly soft. I don't know if you've ever heard the antidote about how women in the past used to get mercury poisoning from makeup, from the rouge they were putting on that gave them heavy metal poisoning, but cinnabar was the culprit here. It was nice and red, and they simply didn't realize its toxic qualities. Now Cinnabar's poison is kind of a force of nature. She doesn't have full control over it. And because of this, she's already a little bit isolated and she then further isolates herself from what is required. She doesn't want to hurt anyone. She doesn't want to ruin things and destroy things. She doesn't want to have to fight because it means doing all that. But the impossibility of her situation to her mind has caused her to kind of give up on things. The whole series opens with her sitting there alone and downcast, finally looking up out into night and sort of begrudgingly knowing that she has to go to work. And while it seems like work is supposed to provide purpose for everyone and sort of give them something to do, it's not fulfilling Cinnabar at all. She's completely isolated. She's completely disenfranchised. But in spite of all that, when Fos is in danger, she shows up. She does all these things she doesn't want to do to come to the aid of her fellow Jim. And while I wouldn't say this changes her characterization, because we don't really have enough to know if this was a change for her, when she sees the encyclopedia clipboard at the end and is reminded that Fos put herself in harm's way to try to save her, it causes her to be overwhelmed with emotion. It may be that ever so briefly she didn't feel quite so isolated, quite so useless. Like, I mean, how useless can you be if someone puts themselves in harm's way to try to save you? You must have value to someone to be worth that risk. Finally, we come to Fos. Her name is short for Phosphophyllite, a gem that turns out to be kind of rare. Now they reference her as being a 3.5 on our Mohs scale, and she refers to Morga as being a 7, but you need to understand the Mohs scale is an ordinal scale. That is to say that the steps are a ranking, but they don't actually have any absolute value between them. 
It's not a linear scale, it's not a logarithmic scale. It's actually a little bit arbitrary because it's kind of an old scale. You might look at Thros at 3.5 and Morga at 7 and think Morga is twice as hard, but in reality it's probably more like five times as hard. Anyway, this brittleness makes Fos useless for a lot of jobs, and this ongoing uselessness, and apparently her being very clumsy on top of that, probably has a lot to do with the type of character she starts out as. She's a little bit petulant, she's a little bit self-pitying, she's kind of self-centered, she kind of knows she's good for nothing, which is probably why she wants a job that has some importance or some prestige. It's a way of elevating herself and giving herself some sense of importance, some sense of purpose, but she's not gracious in her uselessness, she's a little bit of a brat. She antagonizes Morga and Rutil. She talks back to Kungo. Her first thought when learning that Cinnabar might have interesting information was to turn her into her assistant, that that would make her feel more important, somehow. Now, I wouldn't say that all this goes away when she meets Cinnabar, but a lot of it certainly changes. When she meets someone that is actually lower on the Mohs scale than her, it kind of snaps her out of her self-pity. Learning that someone has a job that seems even more useless than her own job gives her a real sense of perspective. She has a little bit of trouble reconciling the idea that they've forced her out into the night. So Fos has this self-identity of being the weakest, of wanting to fight, of having no job that has prestige or usefulness to this, and she goes and meets someone who's even weaker on the Mohs scale, who can fight, absolutely, and doesn't want to. Fos is not isolated, not really, and probably if her attitude was different she'd be less isolated than she is, but Cinnabar is isolated kind of through no fault of her own. To have the person that is weaker than you, that doesn't want to fight, and that has a job that seems even more useless than you, show up and be the one to save you is a little bit eye-opening. I think a little bit of a change in her is clear in that she starts thinking about Cinnabar and trying to find a place for her rather than only worrying about herself, but I think it's also demonstrated when we see her at the end going and actually documenting the little plants and so forth. Rather than searching for some great discovery only, she's out there doing the sort of non-glamorous, meticulous work that an encyclopedia writer needs to do. I wouldn't say her job suddenly has tremendous value in her mind, but the fact that she's now out there actually doing it, I think speaks to her change in character just over the course of this one episode. So the next section in our analysis is what I call world building. Now a lot of people associate world building with fantasy or science fiction stories, or basically any kind of speculative fiction, because one of the things you need to set out is how the reality of a story is different from the reality that you and I inhabit. Now that's also true for the way I'm using world building, but I also include things about setting, characters' pasts, or other sort of circumstances that are not directly related to their actual characterization. All that still goes in world building. World building, in other words, is the circumstances our characters inhabit. Since this is the premiere of a speculative fiction work, there is understandably a lot in this category for this particular episode, but I don't actually feel like we were ever overwhelmed with it. I feel like it was all parceled out kind of neatly, kind of throughout. There wasn't really a lot of characters telling each other things they should already know for the benefit of the audience, which is usually a good indicator of good storytelling. Before we actually do go line by line through world building, I want to take a moment and talk about the fact that almost this entire anime is computer generated, that it is CGI. I know this is going to turn a lot of people off to the series. A lot of people can't handle the way the movement looks a little bit different. Somehow things rendered in 3D space look less lifelike to some people than things rendered in 2D space. But I do want to comment on why I think this was a good choice. 
First and foremost, it's such a good use of it. It's so well done throughout most of the episode that it kind of eliminates a lot of things that you would normally complain about CG, especially when you're mixing it with traditional 2D drawings. But the main thing they're able to do here is the way they're able to render the gems, both their hair, which is the obvious kind of always visible part, and their insides whenever they are damaged. These gems as living gem things are very different than normal characters. We get lots of anime characters that have outrageous hair and other kind of outrageous physical characteristics. To escalate it further and try to show that how much more different they are required something a little bit different. And I think this was a good choice because the way light plays through it, the way you can see it light kind of reflected on them sometimes, how much your attention is called to the colors that each of them represent is really exaggerated and exemplified by this use of 3D. The other thing that CG is used for a lot is to make the camera move. Basically, it's very hard for a team of artists to show perspective moving as a camera moves and keep that looking consistent and believable as it goes through all the angles, as the foreground and midground and background all change at different rates, as perspective lines and horizon lines shift. It's an incredible amount of work for a team that has to be very coordinated and can still get it very wrong. So it's one of the most logical uses for 3D CG, and it's where it shows up in most anime that use it. This anime doesn't necessarily need it for that purpose, but since they've gone ahead and rendered everything out that way, they make use of this superior camera movement tool set they have and give us lots of interesting shots. And I'm sure that's something they're gonna be doing throughout the series. So since the CG is, to me, pretty good, this opens up the possibility for a very delightful cinematography throughout this whole show. That's what I'm really hoping for anyway. But again, that's just the bonus. The real effect here of showing how different the girls are, I think is pretty well accomplished. The first incredible thing we see really is the girls, the gems, their hair, and all that. But we don't know what it means at first. The first truly outrageous thing we see is the Lunarian sunspots. These sort of Rorschach prints opening up in the sky that apparently are portals for the Lunarians to come through. And man, I am interested to find out more about them. They look less like a raiding party and more like a Hindu pantheon or something similar. Like this gives me the real sense that this is a world of gods and goddesses rather than that these are just some sort of alien being or some other species. There's a very mythical kind of celestial quality to what's going on here. I'm sure we'll actually find out more as the series progresses. Then after their attack, we see that the gems, um, they're gems. They're covered in clothing and makeup and maybe some other things to make them look human-like, but they're just gemstones through and through. They can be chipped and taken apart and put back together. It's a very startling first image to find Morga and Goshe pulled apart and starting to be divvied up like loot from a battlefield. They definitely hit us with a little bit of body horror here. Now Kungo points out that there's just 28 of us, the way he says it. I don't know if that means there are 28 gems or if he's counting himself in that matter, because I don't yet know if he is one of these gems or what his deal is. The point he's trying to make and that we should understand is that it's a very tiny population. And the Lunarians, as he says, are countless. So it's very important that they work as a team, that they all contribute, that they all pull their weight. But the fact that there's only 28 of them means that this is not just a natural species. Something a little bit exceptional is going on here. Speaking of Congo, dude's powerful. When he snaps his hands to make the Lunarians disappear, there's a brief moment where you can kind of see something in his hands or some protrusion from his fingers. And I don't know if he's destroying them or simply banishing them back to where they came from. Either way, the guy who can snap his fingers and win the battle is the guy you want on your side. We learn that everyone, except Cinnabar, needs sunlight, that they feed off the sun. It's so important that when the mercury from Cinnabar gets on them, it prevents light from passing through and it has to be chipped away. It's that important that they get sunlight. 
In fact, they seem to be basically useless at night, again with the exception of Cinnabar, because they need the light to see also. The Lunarians, for whatever reason, have never shown up at night. This seems kind of odd for people who seem to be associated with the moon, which we associated with the night, but whatever, I'm sure we'll learn more. Potentially related to this is the fact that the gems' bodies have microscopic organisms living in them, and that's the reason they can simply be reassembled and they're whole again. This makes me think that they're more of a colony organism than actual individuals the way we think of them, and that seems to be supported by the next bit, which is that their memories are actually housed in the little pieces of them. I guess that makes a little bit of sense because they clearly don't have brains. Everything they are under the surface is just gem on gem on gem all the way through. So to store their memories, which is to say who they are and where they've been, is simply distributed throughout their body into all these individual facets wherever they may be located. And when they lose any piece of their body, they lose the memories that were stored there. Now that's a detail that I'm sure is going to crop up again in some sort of conflict. Now despite actually being gems, it seems they don't want to appear as gems. We have this whole bit where Rutile is putting them back together and she finishes all that up by putting makeup on them or otherwise making them look like they have skin over their gems rather than just looking like walking statues or I guess whatever they would look like without it. Add that to their clothing and have them having fingernails and other things that are very human-like and it seems they adopted humans or something like humans as the thing they want to look like. I don't know why that may be, but they seem to go to great lengths to preserve that illusion. Rutile states that they cannot die. Now I'm sure being cut apart, like what happened to Heliodor, is a kind of death or a kind of loss of consciousness or something, but it seems in one understanding of the term, they are effectively immortal. Finally, this is very minor, but it looks like the little building they're in, the lights change to reflect whoever it is that's there. We see it turn into Phosis sort of green color when she walks out, and then when Dia shows up in her multicoloredness, it turns into a whole bunch of different colors. That may be completely meaningless, but I did want to point it out. So theme is up next, and it's the last thing on our board. Theme is always the most squirrely of all these things. It's much easier to look back at a finished work and notice the patterns and the other thematic elements and come up with certain conclusions or interpretations based on what you see on the whole. Trying to sort out theme while you're in the middle of a series is much more difficult. There's a lot more guesswork and there's a lot of relying on what you've seen in past works to get a sense of what might be important, what might be a thematic element for the series going forward. But none of that has ever stopped me from some wild conjecture. So let's talk about the thematic elements that I notice, at least at this point. First one is the individual versus society. That is an age-old theme throughout lots of literature, and it basically explores the tension between what's good for an individual and what's good for a bunch of individuals working together, because often these are not the same thing. The most obvious example of this in this episode is Cinnabar's character. It seems to be good for their little gem society to keep her sort of away, keep her in night, keep her isolated from everyone else because of her poison and the fact that she can't control it. But that isolation and that lack of purpose is absolutely not good for the individual of Cinnabar. She's not getting what she wants out of society, not the support, not the purpose, not the companionship, but this is a situation where the good of the society is trumping her own individual needs. Next is a theme which I'm simply calling salvation from unlikely sources. It's somewhat related to the next theme, innate value versus your purpose. But basically there seems to be a kind of well-known sense of your hierarchy or your value in the society, thanks to the whole Mohs scale thing. And so I imagine there is a tendency to rely on, depend on, the strongest members in their group, including Master Kunga. But there's a couple things in this episode that give me the sense that that might be turned on its head. The salvation might actually come from unlikely sources. One is the way that Fos is rescued by Cinnabar. We saw the reasonably strong Morga and Goshe be at the mercy of the Lunarians, despite fighting pretty well, it seemed. Then 
Cinnabar comes in and just kind of wipes them out in this really kind of truly epic scene, only for us to find out that she's actually the weakest of them all. She is the lowest on the scale. More to the point, she doesn't actually want to fight at all. She's not actually on patrol during the day most of the time. She was absolutely an unlikely source of salvation. Now that's a direct and sort of narrative example of this theme. The other example was actually kind of symbolic. When Fos takes on the role of being the encyclopedia or I don't know what the actual term is. When she takes on that role, she starts carrying around this little clipboard that has her notes and so forth on it. She doesn't think much of the job. It doesn't seem very important. She carries this thing around, but is not very careful with it. She forgets it at one point. It's blank for a long time, apparently. It seemingly has very little value, but we have two scenes. One is a scene where Fos tries to grab Gaucher's sword, take it for herself, flips it way up in the air, and is almost impaled by it. But she's saved by the clipboard. And the camera holds on that scene for a moment. We're meant to see this and take it in. That scene by itself seems pretty symbolic, but there's another scene at the end when Cinnabar has taken out the Lunarians and the cliff and is falling and seems to be falling to her doom. And Fos risks her poison and reaches down and tries to catch her with the clipboard. Now, I don't actually know how Cinnabar didn't fall all the way down there. It's not really shown how she ends up back on the uh, cliff, but certainly the attempt to save her with that very unlikely tool was there. And once again, the whole action slows down so we can focus on that fact. And there's a callback to it at the end when she discovers the abandoned clipboard and sees her handprint on it. Both of these scenes seem very purposeful, very symbolic. Our next theme, and a little bit related, is innate value versus your purpose. Like I said, there is kind of a clear hierarchy, or at least a clear kind of power level system going on here. And I feel like a lot of stock is put in the innate value of the various gems. Now that's certainly true in the real life version of mineralogy. Mineralogy? Mineral sciencing. And there appears to be an attempt to sort of quantify people's value in this world. Your purpose, your, your job, seems to be related to that innate value. But I strongly suspect that that is gonna be turned on its head. We're gonna see the supposed strongest be weak, and we're gonna see the supposed weakest be strong. We've seen a little bit of that already with Cinnabar, and I suspect we'll find out more next episode, which we can already tell is about Diamond, which we know has a Mohs hardness of 10. It's the very top. She should be the strongest, potentially, if this Mohs scale equals power thing might actually be true. So we'll get to investigate that thematic idea a little bit more next episode. The next theme I have written up here is existential angst. That's not really a good descriptor for it. There's probably a lot of things going on here, and I'm gonna try to explain to you what I'm thinking. The gym girls can't die, okay? They're immortal, at least in one sense of the word. And it's a very common trope that those who are very long-lived tend to lose some of their sense of wonder about being alive. Individual years pile up and so become sort of meaningless. And because there's no impending threat of death, no hard time limit on their existence, living loses some of its luster. They lose some of their eagerness for each day. And so needing a strong cause or a strong sense of purpose is important to keep that sort of existential angst and boredom and malaise from settling in. Rutile gives us a great quote when she's talking to Fos about this whole thing, where she says that rigorous, meaningful work is the best medicine against questioning one's place in the world. In other words, having a purpose or a job that you find very useful, that gives you a sense of usefulness, helps stave off the sense of being kind of cast adrift, of having existential crisis about why you're here and what you're doing, what value you have to yourself or to others. Rutile also asserts that since the gems can be reassembled, they have grown completely incapable of giving up on anything. 
I guess she supposes they have a sort of immortal tenacity, and that any goal in front of them they'll simply chase forever, that they're they're implacable. But Rutil seems to be wrong about this, because Cinnabar has given up. She is hoping to be taken away to the moon. She is hoping to be divvied up and worn as pretty jewelry, because at least then someone's getting use out of her. I mean, she is having some existential angst. Heck, the cliffside where all that goes down, where she's expecting to be taken away, is called the Cape of Emptiness. Fos, given a job, purpose, that she doesn't care about, is still the kind of bratty, aimless person she was before she got the job. It's not until she attaches some purpose or importance to it that she goes through the character change we see. And she gives herself an additional purpose, which is to find some new purpose for Cinnabar. She tells her she's going to find something better than the Night Watch that only she can do. This existential crisis is best personified by Cinnabar and what we have. Her major conflict is not being captured by the Lunarians, but her own sense of despair. Now, I don't know if this is intentional or not. I remarked earlier that the Lunarian's sunspots kind of look like Rorschach prints. Rorschach patterns are those ink blottings, kind of an outdated psychological tool, but you're supposed to look at the abstract patterns and tell a psychologist what you see or what it means to you, and what you get from that is supposed to say something about you. Well, the sunspots look very much like that, and what emerges out of them is, in fact, a threat to their existence. A literal physical one to go along with the very philosophical and yet very real one that a lot of them are probably going to face as the series goes on as other things happen. Final thing I've noticed and what might be a pattern is what we take for granted, or specifically what these characters take for granted. This is really just a kernel of a theme, it's not really a full-blown theme yet, but it's clear there is kind of a reliance on some specialized characters in this little island, gym, kingdom thing. Master Kongo seems to be in charge, seems to be the main protector, seems overwhelmingly powerful compared to everyone else that we've seen. I think it would be very easy to take their safety for granted as long as he's around. The question is, will he always be around? I think they take for granted that Rutil is there to patch them back up. The gems probably don't heal naturally. They probably always have to have someone else put them back together again. But this doesn't stop them from being a little bit reckless and fighting the way they do. There's an assumption that so long as they don't get taken away, they're going to be just fine. Fos took for granted that she was the weakest and the most useless of them all, and it really probably kind of informed her personality. Finding out that it's not the case, and that someone else is in a lot of ways worse off and more useless, is a real change for her. And I suspect when other people have to face the things they're taking for granted, they will go through a similar character change. There is one bit of symbolic imagery that I think goes along nicely with this theme. That is when Fos is looking all over for Cinnabar, she comes across her trail, some mercury kind of left on the ground, and in a puddle of that is a dead butterfly. Cinnabar's poison has undoubtedly killed it. Later on, after Cinnabar has saved him, and she's talking about how she wishes she was taken away, a butterfly comes and lights on Fos. And of course it's fine. And while this is happening, Cinnabar is talking about how nice it must be to be desired even by our enemies. Fos did not feel desired by the rest of the gym community, but Cinnabar doesn't feel desired by them or by the enemies. Fos has taken for granted something just as simple as not killing everything you touch. And a butterfly is probably a very intentional choice here. The butterfly's metamorphosis is a well-known and often used symbol for change because of the stages it goes through. From ugly and earthbound caterpillar into a beautiful flying free butterfly. There's definitely a bit of sort of nudging and winking here that's saying change is coming for these characters. Our next section is called What to Watch For. It's basically things that we reasonably expect to happen or information we reasonably expect to be given that we know we're missing right now or are otherwise expecting. There's a lot we don't know right now, so I'm not going to try to run through all of it, but one of the things you want to pay attention to is the history of this little island. How long it's been there, how they got there, why it's just them, 
what else is going on in the wide world, when this feud with the Lunarians started, there's a lot of missing backstory right now to the initial setting, and I think we're going to need to know more of it in order to fully understand the peril the girls are in, any other threats to their existence, and how the history of their little society has shaped each of them as a character. We want to find out why Kongo is different, why he looks different, why he seems to be so powerful, why he seems to be in charge. Is he the same as them or some other type of being? I personally want to know what the giant bell is for. We get a couple shots of that, so I think it's going to come back into play somehow. We want to watch for more information about Heliodor, the gem that had been kidnapped sometime, probably recently it seems. You see the rescued pieces from the arrowheads from early on, and then later you see Rutil has put together a hand and part of a limb. So I'm guessing she's working on putting Heliodor back together for every little piece they come across. But I think we want to watch and see if that is standard operating procedure. If there is in fact a way to get them back once they're gone. Is that something that normally happens? Is it a fluke? Do they have partially assembled gems here and there? We definitely want this information because we want to understand how permanent the threat to them is from the Lunarians. Related to that, who else might be missing? Now Kungo refers to there being 28 of us. I don't know if he counts himself in that or not, but we have an image after the first fight with the Lunarians where we kind of see what looks like the entire crew assembled together. There are 21 of them in this shot. Fos is kind of hiding behind Kungo. You add the two of them on the ground, Heliodor that you know you're missing, and then Cinnabar who's not there, and that brings you up to 25. So if you count Kongo as part of that 28, we're still missing three people. And there's a part when Kongo is talking about Fos's desire to fight, and he points out all of her weaknesses and her drawbacks, and he says that to overcome that, she would have to actually become even stronger than he is. I don't think this is necessarily kind of a throwaway line. Stronger might mean a lot of things, but I think we should be watching for Fos to kind of take that to heart, or at least act in some way based on what he said. Because he definitely didn't say that she's too weak to ever be useful or to ever contribute. He said that she has to become way stronger, which is a totally different thing. We're also going to be watching for how Cinnabar changes based on what happened at the very end of this episode. We didn't really have enough time to see how this affects her, to see if she's going to act differently than the Cinnabar we've met so far. We already know that Fos is capable of changing, so hopefully we get a little glimpse inside Cinnabar, even though she is kind of still isolated from people. We need to be watching to see if any of her behavior is different, because that'll help us understand how some of these goals line up in priority, and the importance of some thematic elements over others. Last of all, we have speculation. Now this is something I very much enjoy doing. I try to give my rationale for why I think things might go the way I think they might go. I'm often very wrong, but the exercise of trying to forecast where a story is going, based on the information being fed to us so far, helps us understand a lot about how the story is moving, how the various pieces are assembling themselves as new goals and conflicts get added, changed, or fulfilled. Now I've hinted at it a little bit by including it as a conflict and as a bit of a thematic element, but I think Kongo is not gonna be around to protect them forever, maybe not for much longer. I don't know what kind of reduced capacity is involved here because I still don't know enough about him, but I think they've gone ahead and suggested that he might not always be there to look out for them. Somewhat related to that, I speculate that our current status quo will not last for very long at all. I have no suggestions at all about how that may change, but I think the number and maybe intensity of some of our conflicts is about to increase a lot. Potentially related to that speculation, I speculate something's gonna happen to Cinnabar. Whether that means being taken away by the Lunarians, I don't know, but I definitely don't think we're at the end of her unhappiness uh, anytime soon. If that does happen, then I speculate that Fos's sort of newfound desire to help Cinnabar out is gonna be a major driving force of her. It might become her major goal. It might become the thing that drives her. Whether that's to save Cinnabar, find her actually a new purpose, avenge her, I don't know. 
but I think there's a pretty decent chance that Cinnabar's situation is going to change in a more dire way before it gets better, if it gets better. Now, the reason I think a lot of this may happen has to do with some very basic storytelling structure. This episode was very introductory. The immediate threats were dealt with pretty easily, but because we have all these kind of underlying thematic tensions, all these things that suggest that all's not right, and that a lot of characters are suffering from a lack of purpose, I think the status quo is in immediate peril. And the most obvious source of peril is the Lunarians and maybe anyone else in this universe who wants the girls or would otherwise try to hurt the gems or take over, or we don't even know what. We don't have enough idea of what the writer world looks like to make those kind of guesses. But I think something will fundamentally change in their society and very soon, just because the stakes right now are just not very high. Now that Fos has a goal and Cinnabar has at least someone kind of looking out for her, there's really not a ton to worry about. And I doubt what we have here is a slice of life story about Fos discovering new plants and animals and becoming friend with the mercury-wielding outcast. That's just not in the cards but there's not nearly enough information to guess about what that trajectory will be. So let's get right on to the next episode, discover what sort of upheaval is in store for all of our characters. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.